Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by The Apocalypse, finally we're all outside playing again. Let's blow out the candles and start the show. Welcome everybody to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Cyberdyne Systems. Let our new AI network help protect you and your loved ones from all danger for all time. <laughs> Welcome to The Vessel. I'm Wes. And I'm Todd. And this is the show where we like to analyze, break apart movies and cinema. Usually we do TV here and there. And that's kind of one of the interesting things. Like today we're doing Terminator 2. Last week we did Terminator 1. And they've done everything with the series. Like they've turned it into TV shows and more movies and more sequels. And TV is a fascinating area to me that gives way to longer form content. Movies typically have shorter thoughts. We're trying to accomplish a much smaller idea and theme, whereas a TV show can explore a single theme for you know, either one episode or 24 episodes and then have smaller themes along the way as they're tackling this bigger idea. Yeah. And I always just really love the idea that, and I'll talk about it at the very end of the episode, that some series and writers and some ideas give way to bigger ideas that has all this room for expansion and some don't <laughs> and we're not going to talk about obviously everything but terminator didn't seem to have the uh the legs on it i think that others do but i also didn't grow up watching a lot of tv i watched a lot of movies i don't did you have access to cable growing up and watch a lot of I did. TV? I did, and uh, and yeah, I watched a lot of TV. <laughs> what were the uh, formative shows that you remember from growing up? Um, okay, Fraggle Rock. <laughs> it was amazing. Yeah. It was like, you know, live action. Mm -hmm. it, wasn't, it wasn't a cartoon. Uh, it had an actual person in it, even though you didn't really see the guy, I don't think. Um, but no, it was, yeah, it's a Fraggle Rock. When I got a little bit older, Quantum Leap. Ooh, yeah. Still, it was formative for me. It was an amazing show. It's like the, the whole concept and, and the way they ended it was so awesome. Anyway, go watch really? it. Yes. I never got to the end. Oh, dude. Oh, boy. It's, <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah, man after my own heart. Um, it's fantastic. It, I mean, you know, obviously it's like a... It's like an 80s, maybe even early 90s. No, I think it's just 80s. Pretty 80s. and so oh, like yeah. Some stuff is yeah. just will not hold up. But like if you just think about the concept about, you know, this guy tra traveling through time in his own lifetime. So he has to have been lived. He has to have lived through all of these events um, and and trying. But he can't get home. He's like every time he leaps, he's trying to get home. Right. It was an accident. And conceptually, that's such a fun idea that he now has to empathize and experience someone else's life. Yes. And so, and, and yeah, and they get, I mean, they go into all these different avenues. They go into race, they go into gender, they go into like all these different things. And in some ways it's funny and in some ways it's heartbreaking. Um, he plays a woman sometimes, um, and that's hilarious until it's not. And when it's not, it really isn't. And then, but he's always trying to get home to his wife. Right. And there's just driving force to like, not stop, to not give up, to not quit. And, and the ending is just really good. Um, so yeah, that, 
I'm sorry, Beavis and Butthead. <laughs> I just loved it. I loved it. It made I because I I was really getting into music at the time, and you know all I I got introduced to like all these bands that they made fun of, Blind Melon and 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 Quar and like um That's right. yeah and uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers and and um, Stone Temple Pilots like all of these great bands. Uh, that I got introduced to because they made fun of them. That's such a cool, I mean, back to back, I know you, you laughed about it, like Beavis and Head, Ha Ha, Chasing Quantum Leap, but those two together kind of really, to me, embody, <laughs> oddly enough, like what I really love about uh, TV and film in and of itself is that on the one hand, you know, you have a method of helping us identify and empathize with people. And on the other hand, you have another method of showing us that, you know, this life is absurd and uh, this is all we get and it's okay to rebel and it's okay to be your own person and to uh, live your own life and do your own thing. Mm -hmm. And I think those two things really do complement each other in, you know, this uh, yin and yang kind of way. <laughs> yeah. And I think I got away with, my parents are pretty religious. <laughs> yeah. And so I think I could get away with watching a show that might not necessarily, that might be a little too advanced for me, you know, like maybe it's a, more of a PG 13 kind of thing. And, but because it's like episode by episode and some episodes are very tame and others are not, I could kind of get away with watching a show. Cause like, it was like, okay, this is my show. I get to watch my show. Right. Um, but movies were not like that. Movies were like, they had a rating, they had a rating. And if it was anything more than a PG, it was like, you know, off the table and R was just like a no, no basic instinct in yeah, your house. <laughs> definitely not. I mean, the first time a buddy of mine brought over Nirvana for me to hear, we had like a bunch of friends were sleeping over and he brought over Nirvana and I was so terrified that he was going to cuss in it. I'd never heard Nirvana before and, and it would, I was like really scared, you know, that I would get in trouble. And he was like, no man. I mean, he says, he says shit once, but that's, that's yeah. it. I was like, okay, well, if he only does that once, I, they probably won't hear it when he says that, right? Right. Well, they totally did, but it was it was worth it. It was worth it. It completely changed my life, you know. But yeah. that was that's another band that I was introduced to because of that show. And so, but anyway, so what do you? What about you? Yeah, I mean, you're more of a movie. Yeah, I watch so many movies. I mean, The Terminator is for sure. But like, as far as TV goes, Night Court, I guess was. One oh that I could watch God, a, uh, yes. here and there. Nice. And we lived out in the country. So for the most part growing up, I almost never had cable. I had, I think, in one or two very short spans where I got to see something like Saturday Night Live, which I know you don't associate with cable, but in the country, and I mean, I'm in the country of the country. It's not like I'm in a, the countryside of Houston. I'm in the countryside of a very small Texas town that has, you know, less than 2000 people in it. So it's the country of the country. I'm three miles outside of that. Damn. Dude. Yeah. It's like the stick. Yeah. Did you ever watch mama's family? Uh, a little bit when I was at relative's house, I didn't, okay. I've seen like one or two episodes of it okay. maybe yeah. um, in passing. And it, I just saw Hicks and I was just turned off. It wasn't like my cup of tea. Yeah. Yeah. I feel you. Um, but yeah, I, Beyond that, I mean, some cartoons that we had a family in town that would record cartoons for us uh, periodically and bring them over to us Saturday afternoon. Like, hey, you can watch. That's cool. Yeah, they were a really great family. Ken, Ken and Miriam were amazing. And beyond that, like, I mean, I'm sure there's some, but whenever I was at relative's house, we'd watch Kids Incorporated or uh, <laughs> In Living Color. But it was so 
sprinkled in that I couldn't say I really identify with too many TV shows. Um, whereas kids, you know, growing up would be all about, I, all the Nickelodeon shows they knew, I don't know any of that stuff. Clarissa explains it all or something. Yeah. That's about the extent of what I know about that show is its title. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah. It was all movies for me. All right. Turtles all the way down. (laughs) So do you remember the first time you saw T T2? Oh Yeah. In theaters with my mom. and Really? Yeah, I was one of those. It was a huge experience. How like, old were you? I was probably 10. Okay. Yeah. So it was mostly appropriate. I watched a lot of inappropriate things. Yeah, now. I mean, there wasn't any... Polar th- opposite of what you experienced. Yeah. I mean, I, I think for me, it, there was... It was like mostly about sex. Like, yeah. that's the that's the taboo thing, right? And there's, yeah. there's none of that in this No, in this that's movie, true. Right? By yeah. the way, spoilers. We didn't even true. go over that. Right. So... Sorry about it if we spoil that there's no sex in T2. <laughs> um, but yeah, so spoiler alert, if you haven't seen Terminator 2, Judgment Day, pause this episode, go watch it, come back uh, and, and join us. Yeah, uh, we'll talk about a few things, I guess, a story, uh, not just the story itself, but also kind of the sci-fi and the rules that are in within T1 and T2. The others don't exist in terms of what I consider to be Terminator. We'll talk about visual effects. Actually, wardrobe is one of the small things that I found kind of interesting in here. Yeah, yeah. Um, and many of the things. Awesome. A quick synopsis of the film. A cyborg identical to the one who failed to kill Sarah Connor must now protect her teenage son, John Connor, from a more advanced and powerful cyborg. Directed by James Cameron, written by James Cameron and William Wisher. Cinematography by Adam Greenberg, who also shot T1... Featuring Arnold Schwarzenegger as Uncle Bob. <laughs> <laughs> Linda Hamilton as Sarah Connor. Edward Furlong as John Connor. And Robert Patrick as T-1000. That was fantastic. We're not going to make it, are we? people, I mean. It's in your nature to destroy yourselves. Yeah. Major drag, huh? Break it up for a ring. Both your necks. Come on. I need to know how Skynet gets built. Who's responsible? The main most directly responsible is Miles Bennett Dyson. Who is that? He's the director of special projects at Cyberdyne Systems Corporation. Why him? In a few months, he creates a revolutionary type of microprocessor. Go on. Then what? In three years, Cyberdyne will become the largest supplier of military computer systems. All stealth bombers are upgraded with Cyberdyne computers, becoming fully unmanned. Afterwards, they fly with a perfect operational record. The Skynet funding bill is passed. The system goes online on August 4, 1997. Human decisions are removed from strategic defense. Skynet begins to learn at a geometric rate. It becomes self-aware at 2.14 a.m. Eastern Time, August 29th. In a panic, they try to pull the plug. Skynet fights back. Yes. It launches its missiles against the targets in Russia. Why attack Russia? Aren't they our friends now? Because Skynet knows that the Russian counterattack will eliminate its enemies over here. Jesus. So one of the interesting things about, I mean, that scene is 
you send a robot back in time. He's also a database of information. And I find that just kind of interesting on his face that, you know, James Cameron didn't ignore that fact that he has access to tons and tons of information. They don't really tap into anything other than exactly what they need. Um, that's story efficiency and that kind of thing. But also love just the intelligence of the analysis of understanding why Skynet did what it did. They attacked Russia. Why the heck would you attack Russia? Because Russia is going to attack us. And now we've neutralized one of our enemies and they're going to neutralize our others. <laughs> like it's such a smart way to think about how a computer would analyze the situation today and how to get the cleanest, quickest victory. Yeah. Brilliant. Brutal. Brilliant. Yeah. yeah. Like brilliant writing there. Uh, what was, do you remember the first time you saw this? I, I don't. No, I don't. I've seen it, you know, a few times. I didn't see it in theaters. I was too little. Um, uh, I mean, I was probably, you know, it's probably like a, a teenager, but I can't remember. Um, I can't remember when. I just remember that I really liked it. Uh-uh. And it wasn't because of the special effects. I mean, yes, I liked the special effects, especially back then. Um, but it was just a good movie. Yeah. I just rem- I remember it being a good movie. Like, I enjoyed it. So what was the experience watching it this time? It was just exactly the same. <laughs> Man, this movie holds up, right? Yes. I mean, I can't Okay, look, look. Any any movie that's pretty that's pretty like like pivotal where it has pivotal CGI, right? Mhm. Like a Jurassic Park or T2, yeah. like this is game-changing CGI. Right. And I, it's core to the story. Yes, yes. I think if it's done the right way, it's timeless. Yeah. Right? Okay. You mentioned Jurassic Park is a perfect example. I think in that entire movie, the CGI was maybe six minutes long in the entire movie. Most of it was practical. Wow. Right? It was very, it was actually very little CGI. Like the flock of whatever and yeah, something and then, like that. Yeah. And then the T, the T-Rex mm-hmm. in the room. So most of it was practical, but like they just used perfect amount in a perfect way to make it timeless. And I think that in this movie, they did that exact same thing. Absolutely. It's the little touches that sell the effect. And like you're saying, use real things. And yes. the truth is real things interact with the world in a very real way, obviously. Uh, like whenever he stabs the, the foster dad and we cut to the reveal of that, there's milk dripping off the blade. And that's because it stabbed through the milk carton. So, of course, milk is going to run down. And it's because they built a blade and only used the CG transition from the blade to the hand. You know, and then on top of that, they use, you know, the lighting is perfect. And the use of solid objects really helps sell the CG because, you know, they use the objects they picked, like metallic objects and the checkered floor. Those are very solid grounded things that are easy to replicate and to use lighting and understand how lighting works off of these objects. And so by understanding what we should and should not uh, try to emulate, they did themselves a huge favor. Okay, well, let's not emulate a blade. Let's just build a blade. Yeah. And in the metallic objects, whenever he's metal, they don't make them hyper shiny. They make them this kind of blurred, you know, uh, greasy, almost shiny. And it's so you don't have perfect metallic reflections off of it. Yeah. And it's just it. Yes, it all holds up. And right. It's perfect. Yeah. They, they use it when they have to and they don't when they don't. And and I, I think part of that was because it would I mean, 
this was a revolutionary kind of CG back then, right? This was like a, oh my God, nobody's ever done anything like this before. This is mind blowing. So the way that I look at it is that it was probably they had to kind of guerrilla style it a little bit in like, okay, what can we get away with, right? Because there isn't enough technology in 1994 when, when uh, this came out in 91, 91 so they were shooting in probably 90 okay so there wasn't enough technology in 90 to do like like the avatar right yeah uh, version of this <laughs> right. right thank god mm-hmm. right so they had to do things like build the blade and then however the light reflected off the blade that's how we make the the rest of the metal look it's a reference yeah right it's a, it's a more of a reference point that good point and so they're building most of it and most of it is practical and then they're modeling the CG off of the practical. Whereas now it's almost so easy to do CG that they just do everything CG and they don't have much to model off of. So they're kind of like just using their artistic rendering to figure out what's right and what doesn't look right. And does that feel good or whatever? Yeah. There's other movies I could talk about that. Absolutely. Do it wrong, but and, yeah. and that's why you go with someone like a Weta that our buddy Joe works at. Yeah. It's because they're, they're going to do all those things that you're talking about, but it costs you, <laughs> you're going to pay right, the price for right. it. <laughs> well, I mean, then the argument is, okay, it's expensive to do that. So let's not do that. Let's just build the, the stuff as much as we possibly can. I mean, I don't know why it's, is it maybe because, you know, the studios have all this money and they say you have X amount of time to make this movie because it takes a lot longer to build the practicals to use um, in some cases than to like make an entire scene. Um, and just say, do it in just post. Say, yeah, do it in <laughs> post, right? Right. Or like, here's a green screen and do everything to a green screen. And that's. That's I think it. that's it. I think it's a convenient way to kind of punt decisions until later. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. let's. We'll figure that out whenever we have more time and we can go through that iteration process instead of building out, oh, it's actually going to be a, you know, a big, crazy colored monster. And so we're going to build those lighting, you know, effects into the monster so that the actors have this real world lighting that's going to respond appropriately. Instead, it's like, eh, like you're saying, we'll just green or blue screen it and we'll, we'll figure it out. It's like, well, you're missing that that those little tiny bits of difference that really sells the effect. Yeah. And, and what they did with this quote unquote monster, this cyborg guy was just brilliant. How they like, they made him in some ways kind of not human, but like non invincible. So like when he's shot, right, it hurts him. You can tell it hurts him. It knocks him back. It knocks him down um, and stuff. And it takes him a moment yeah, he has to pause. He has to pause and collect him, literally collect himself, yeah. um, put himself back together, and then go, right? It does a lot of stuff. First off, that really kind of grounds him as a character that is, I mean, he might be defeatable, but he's never defeated, right? He's always like puts himself back together, but it gives you this hope throughout this whole movie. Like just keep shooting him. Maybe something will happen. I don't know. I have no idea. At least buy some time. But you know, it's doing something. It's just not like doing the thing you want it to do. So it does, it does that. But then also it, it gives you this, um, it makes him, I lost my train of thought. God damn it. Fuck. But one of the things I really love just to dive shortly into wardrobe was he's a cop. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's a really interesting choice for a robot coming back in time. And it's interesting, I think, for a number of reasons. But first, on just a surface level, 
who's going to have more access and get away, get away with whatever he wants to do. Cause you have to ask yourself, why does he keep going back to being a cop? He's sampled so many other people and he can be almost anything he wants to be, but he keeps choosing this cop. Well, first he's an attractive cop. He's charismatic and he has a badge. So you have every which way that if you want to move fluidly throughout our world, that's Mm. perfect. Yeah. You know, you carry authority and then you carry the charisma and attractiveness of, you know, a a white man. That's going to open a lot of doors that (laughs) otherwise it will get shut down to maybe a lot of other characters. Yeah. Uh, That's like the perfect all access badge. The other reason why I like that he's a cop is it's a role reversal from T1. And the first Terminator, what you had was the the rogue outlaw biker bad boy against all the good guys. The cops were the good guys here. And whenever you saw a cop, you felt a sense of safety or at least hope. And in this one, every time you see a cop, it's danger. And so they carry that throughout that through line. The entire time. It's not yeah. just him, but when the cops show up at the end, reasonably, it's not like the cops are wrong here. Yeah, sure. Because these guys are trying to blow up a building. Of course, yeah. they're going to, you know, come in and wreck shop. But in every which way, we're afraid of cops the entire time. And that's a really cool reversal of uh, the roles, which is, you know, carried through not only the wardrobe and the styling and good guy versus bad guy, but of course, it's carried through the Terminator himself, who was a bad guy last time and now he's a good guy. I love the reversal of Sarah Connor. She goes from a waitress and her waitress outfit to a psych ward patient and post-apocalyptic badass. Like and she, her, we'll talk about her in a minute because yeah, yeah. I mean, we need to have a whole section about yeah. her. Um, it, it, yeah, it's amazing. And, and uh, on the cinematographer. Yeah. Yes. Um, and lastly on wardrobe, I really like the, uh, the SWAT team having the gas mask on. Um, I think it just makes sense for a number of reasons. For one, it covers their faces to make them more menacing, right? A SWAT team. That's what you want. You want to fear the SWATs. Uh, but it also lets you cleverly on the production side, reuse stuntmen. Mm-hmm. So if you get this wide shot, you don't necessarily need 20 stuntmen. You may only need three. And then you cut to the close-ups, and now you only have two or three guys in a scene. Now you can just recycle those guys <laughs> <laughs> from scene to scene, you know, just give yeah, them different yeah. styling or name tags or whatever. But, and it also, using those guys wearing gas, gas masks, it helps identify the important characters by not distracting us with random faces. So it's very easy because you get into that room in, in the lobby, and it's smoked out. And so... It, you just want a clear definition of who's good, who's bad. And that's just one of those things that helps us dehumanize and depersonalize the cops. Mm-hmm. And now it's like, oh, bad guys. We can't yeah. see their faces. We can't. There's no humanity there. Uh, and you, you feel less bad for them whenever they get kneecapped. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Yeah. But talk to me about the cinematography what did you think man the transition of adam greenberg i don't don't know if it was you know they invented dollies in in between or like you know jibs or something uh they didn't have them for t1 or they didn't have the budget i don't know but but dear god man i mean so much cleaner not just and it wasn't just the movement was cleaner okay it was obvious that the movement was thought out and and meticulous, right? Mm -hmm. We're going to move from here to here in this amount of time. And this is going to happen in that span. It was planned and it was very obvious, especially and choreographed, especially if you watch T1 right before T2, (laughs) uh, it is so noticeable, but so not only, not only that, but also the actual framing was, 
was like perfect. It was, mm. it was, um, it was amazing. And it, so anybody who's like, so framing essentially is whatever you're going, you, you plan on capturing in the frame, but everything has a, has a place, right? So you have, you know, if you have a main character, maybe you want the main character to be uh screen left, right? Because you want a lot of, maybe he's looking off to the, to the right. And so you want to have all this space to see, like maybe he's looking into the distance or something. So you have to plan what is going to be in that frame. It's obvious in T1, there wasn't a whole lot of planning or if there was, it was just not executed well. Yeah. They're going to focus on the the specific moments. They know what's going to happen. And then the rest, it's like, we're, we're just rolling. Yeah. It was like, so anyway, this time, Everything was meticulously planned. Everything was was important. The editing was way better. Um, it, it and I do suspect amazing. it comes down to budget and time. Like yeah, for sure. Here, I mean, James Cameron has probably made between Terminator One and Two. He's probably made two or three really successful films. Like Aliens yeah. came out in that time span, which yeah. was a monster. Oh, yeah. um, no pun intended. Mm-hmm. And then you had The Abyss. Uh, came oh my God. in between here and there Such a great movie. Um, and probably one other that I can't quite name, but yeah. um, he was just on a roll and he's never stopped being on a roll quite yeah. frankly. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah. in between, so what do you think changed with, with uh, Adam Greenberg? I think, it, I think it was just money time and time. Yeah. I think that's really yeah. the majority of it. I mean, there's a seven year gap and so I'm sure he worked on other projects and, you know, learned and, Along the way, like, oh, now we have six months of pre-production instead of, you know, six weeks. Great. Now let's really think through the script. For anybody out there who wants to be a cinematographer, watch these two movies back to back and you like you will see a learning curve like you've never seen. I mean, I have like really, really it's hard. Okay, and it's hard to to find to do this with any cinematographer because most of them like a lot of them don't do a sequel. And if they do, it's not a sequel that's as tied to the first as this is. This is like so tied in with T1. Um, So like having this, you can you can see the literal progression from one to the other so seamlessly because they're about the same thing. They have a lot of the same characters. Um, uh, some stuff happens that are, that's the same. I mean, there's new stuff that happens that has to be shot a certain way. Like, you know, the, the fluidness of this new cyborg mm-hmm. and everything. Um, it's, it's, it's just a great example of, of watching a movie and thinking that guy's not good at what he does. And then, watching a movie seven years later thinking that guy's the best at what he does. <laughs> you know, it should make you feel really good about just go do stuff like yeah. go work at your craft and you could be that Adam Greenberg, uh, who shot T2, Hell not the one yes. that shot T1, the one that shot <laughs> T2. It's just very noticeable. I love seeing that, that yeah. kind of impression. I mean, I love that in, in musical artists as well. Like if you listen to like, you know, early EPs and stuff, and, you know, there might be a place in your heart for those songs, but then you listen to, you know, their most recent record and you're like, oh my God, like yeah. it is, it's unbelievable. The, the leap, you know, what did you, so speaking of transformations between one and two, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Linda Hamilton. Yeah. Yeah. Like she owns Sarah Connor yeah. so badly. It's amazing just to see. And it, I mean, it's great writing and great execution all the way around. She goes from this meek, scared, needs help and uh, barely conquers the monster. And thankfully she does in the first one. But in this one, she 
takes everything that happened to her in the first one and completely builds on top of it. And she showed up to set ready. Yeah. Like emotionally and certainly physically. Because uh, I, I believed her performance every step of the way. That moment when she's, when she's doing her escape from the, the hospital, the psych ward, and she has that moment when she sees the... The, the T1. The T1, T-1 yeah. yeah. Uh, what is it? What was he? 600 or something like that. I forget. The T100, the T101. right? T1000 is the metallic one. Oh. Uh, the original, I forget... Uh, T-100, T-101, is, I don't know. Whatever. T-1. Schwarzenegger. Yeah. Get off the elevator. Yeah. That whole scene plays beautifully because you're empathizing every step of the way. And it's it's a, there's so many tricky moments in movies like this where you have a character like in, in the horror version of the first one. Like there's probably moments where you're like, what are you doing? Don't stand there. Don't stop. You know, you, you see the issue and there's that dramatic irony of a moment like this where we know that the Terminator's on her side, but she doesn't. And you're like, why don't you get it? But in that moment, you know what happened in the first one and you see the sheer terror on her face and it, the beats are perfect. And the music is, yeah, I'm like, yeah, the run slow away. motion is perfect. The slow motion because she's sliding on the floor towards him still. Cause she yeah. falls on her butt and she keeps <sighs> sliding. She's just pushing, pushing, trying to get back with slow motion. It's like perfect use. Oh, it's agony. And then she, you know, tries to run away and she's getting caught and she's screaming, you know, all of that just plays perfectly. And I think it all rests on her and her execution in that, in that moment specifically. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah, I was just floored and super impressed with her, you know, 20 years, 25 years later, uh, 27, eight years later, Jesus. Um, but you know who really impressed me? Edward Furlong. Yeah, dude. He carries this movie, man. Yes, he does. <laughs> That's mind blowing. I know. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. Schwarzenegger's important, but he's also playing a robot. <laughs> yeah. It, and he executes it like exactly the way he should. Yeah. I mean, he is. Schwarzenegger is perfect as a Terminator, but he wouldn't work because this is kind of a classic straight man versus uh, the comedian kind of role, except in this case, it's the straight man versus the emotional man uh, embodied by Edward Furlong playing uh, John Connor. Mm-hmm. John Connor, he's a kid. He's a jackass. He's a he's a rebel. And he brings all the heart and all the uh, emotionality to this yeah. film. I mean, he gives emotion to Schwarzenegger. Yeah. To the Terminator. He gives him emotion. He teaches him how to emote. I mean, and he says at the end, uh, now I understand why you cry. And that's only because of, of what he taught him. You know, we don't, you know, don't kill anybody. And, you know, we, he taught him lessons. He taught him how to, how to talk. Hasta la vista, you know, like, and then he <laughs> fell in love with him. Yeah. You know, and I think there, you know, there's part of me that when he was being lowered into the, into the, the iron that, you know, he didn't want to, to go. I think there's part of me that, that felt like he had to do it, obviously, and he was going to do it, but he didn't want to, he wanted to stay with John. That's so cool. Right. Yeah. Whether that's true or (laughs) not, it doesn't matter. That's what I, that's what I felt, (laughs) you know? And, uh. Um, oh man, and how good was that when he rolls up with the shotgun, he rolls Ooh. up over that gear and shoot, like blows. <laughs> oh my God. So good. Um, but Oh, uh, so uh, anyway, one thing I want to say about Linda Hamilton was that it was it, the biggest mind blowing thing for me was, was 
not just her transformation, you know, from the the meek, meager girl who didn't know how to change a tire to the I'm going to save the world, you know, badass. It was more of her like actual acting. Yeah. She was not good in T1. She did. It was just I mean, and there were parts of it that were like, OK, this is 80s, you know, it's just not the best. She fit the purpose. Yeah, she fit the purpose, but maybe there was cycle. Yeah. There was room. Maybe she dies or something, and you get like, like you know, her. I don't know, her best friend or something is yeah. now, but I don't know. Who knows? But, but no, her her acting was fantastic. So there had to have been something that that Cameron saw in her in T one that said, oh no, she can transform. Right. She can be this badass. Yeah, definitely. You know, because it's not just about her, like being a badass and getting mad. I think that a lot of people could actually, you know, kind of get away with that. But but the acting in between the emotion is is the part that really surprised me. I didn't expect to see her to like feel her actual acting in between the the anger and the frustration, you know, because you see that all buried in her face. Like the distraught terror of what's coming and the almost the helplessness of trying to stop it. Yeah. Like even the moment um, right before the clip we played at the intro, the moment before that is uh, they're eating food at the gas stop and uh, John looks at his mom's like, hey, you want my fries? And she is gone. Her she's just staring off into space. And that might sound pretty easy, but uh she carries it's, it. It's one of the hardest things to do. Yeah. yeah. Like nonverbal communication right. on, a ca- on camera is very difficult to do. I mean, there's, there's a reason why not a whole lot of actors do it well. And you have, you know, um, uh, what's his name from, from drive. Oh, Ryan Gosling. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. God dang. I'm so bad with names. <laughs> you got Ryan Gosling and you've got a few others that are, that are known for that kind of thing, but that's like a special thing. Yeah. It's, it's hard to like, convincingly stare off into nothing. But you're right. I mean, she really carried it just the physicality, the way she carried herself, Mm -hmm. the way she held her shoulders. Um, Her posture was all completely different and committed to this character. Yeah. And and can can we talk for a second about the, and I know we're kind of bouncing all over the place. Sorry about this, but I I just keep getting these thoughts. You know, sometimes on this show, we, we give Cameron a hard time about, Oh, I have a whole thing on story that I'm like, yeah. he okay. gets props because they destroyed this, this might be one of my favorites that I've ever seen of his. I mean, like story wise, it is so perfect in every way. I would like to point out, though, that this wasn't written and directed by James Cameron. It was directed by James Cameron, written by James Cameron and yeah. William Wisher. Well, yeah, I understand. <laughs> I understand that. But but. I'm still that's, gonna that's always him. been my contention is that he needs a writing partner. Oh, gotcha. his ideas have always been great. Like whether we're talking about Avatar, Titanic, whatever, the ideas are great. They need fleshing. They need they need flesh on those robot bones. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, okay. And so, but I completely agree. Like this is probably my favorite James Cameron movie. Yeah, mm. Aliens might be up there, but uh, between this and Aliens, I have a hard time choosing for sure. But I'll have to go watch it. (laughs) We'll do it at some point, but um, this is amazing. Incredible story. Um, Can, can I just roll through? Please, please. So 
first, you know, as you alluded to a minute ago or touched on, the whole story is kind of centered around can a robot learn the value of human life? Can a human? And that's, you know, very much the, uh, the end note that we end on. The unknown future rolls toward us. I face it for the first time with a sense of hope. Because if a machine, a Terminator, can learn the value of human life, maybe we can too. And credits. And credits. Like, that's the perfect note because it's really the fulfillment of the idea that kicked off in the first movie. And, of course, you also have... uh, well, I'll, I'll get to that in a second. So I love the great dialogue as the best of any Cameron movie, I would wager, including Aliens. I think the dialogue in this movie is far, far superior to anything else he's done um, writing wise. And the uh, emotional connection with the Terminator is the linchpin of the entire film, because um, if you don't really care whether or not he lives or dies, then all these critical moments don't have an emotional impact on you and you almost don't care what's happening to everyone around you. Uh, and that sucks because that's the, that is the entire movie. But the surprising thing to me is how simple the story structure is. When you think about plot points, you have save the boy, save the mom, destroy Cyberdyne. That's the entire movie. And there's a there's a chase along the way, of course, and there's they go deeper. And that's kind of one of the impressive things is they take that very simple structure and they add all this depth through the chess match between these two robots, because every step of the way, the Terminator is saying, no, he's going to anticipate that. That's where he's going to be. And he's right. But they're both they're both right. The T-1000 is right to go there because that's what he is going to do. Yeah. <laughs> because your, foster, he, he, your foster parents are dead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He knew they would go there. It's perfect. Um, but it also does a great job of establishing the stakes every step of the way. And yeah, I love how simply the, uh, the stakes are underscored with Sarah's nightmares. Like we don't spend as much time in the future in this one as the first one, but we don't really need to because it's all written on Sarah's face and in her dreams as she's visualizing the, the du- nuclear detonation of LA and the melting of bodies and kids. And of course that's always in politics and movies. That's the easiest place to always go to is don't forget about the children. Yeah. <laughs> what about the yeah. kids? And so show us kids being blasted away. We care. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It works. Um, and the emotional arcs are fan freaking tastic here. You have Sarah Connor coping with the Terminator being not just a savior now, but also a father figure to her son, which by the way is the same son it previously tried to kill. All right, now hit me. Give me five. Do the same thing. Do the same thing. All right. Okay, that's good. That's good. Um, up high, up high. Five low. <laughs> Too slow. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Let's try it one more time. Good. Now try it. Now try it. Good. Now do me. Give me five. Watching John with the machine. It was suddenly so clear. The Terminator would never stop. It would never leave him. And it would never hurt him, never shout at him or get drunk and hit him or say it was too busy to spend time with him. It would always be there and it would die to protect him. 
of all the would-be fathers who came and went over the years, this thing, this machine, was the only one who measured up. In an insane world, it was the sanest choice. That's such a simple concept that they don't really dive super deep into beyond that, I would say, well, and, and the death of it. But it's, it's the very idea. I mean, we, we talked about this last week, you know, incidentally, whenever we, we were talking about one of the dangers of artificial intelligence is its ability to connect and fulfill uh, love in ways that, you know, sometimes humans are imperfect and we don't do the best job. And I love that she, as a mother, is looking at this Terminator like uh, this is a great father figure and also seeing her own failures as a mother and him because one of the things she says is he'll always be there for him. And she wasn't. She and, missed those moments. And using the word die. He yeah. would die. Ooh, she put him. humanity she, into him. She made him human in that statement. Wow, great yeah. catch. Yeah. And so she's wrestling with that and also how much uh, she herself has become like a Terminator. Mm -hmm. And I love that moment whenever uh, she sees the terror on Dyson's face and his family and she, we can feel her wrestling. And that's one of those. That was a great moment. Yeah. God, that's hard to write. Yeah. You're trusting your audience and your actors and your, and your ability to create this moment. And for us to understand without ever saying it, they never vocalize that, that she right there feels like a bad person because she's recognizing herself as a robot and it's yeah. effective. It, it really knocks you down. Yeah. Um, so emotional arcs wise, we also had the son dealing with uh, getting a friend and losing him. Um, you have Dyson, who is a very minor but important part of the story, seeing and accepting yes. his part of a fallen world and killing three billion people. Like that's a really heavy thing to wrestle with. And they do it effortlessly in this movie um, in a believable way. We never felt like, why would you care? Well, a dude just ripped his arm off and explained everything in a way that only Dyson could understand. Yeah, and then in this writing is fantastic because, okay, it, a lot of times in films, let's just say in a film today, somebody were to find that out, well, they might write them like a, uh, like a, a really bad guy like a, well, how does that concern me? Right. You know, the kind of thing. But I would challenge 99.9% .9 of people, if you were to find that out, you would have the same reaction. You'd want to throw up and then you'd say, okay, what can I do to not make, to stop this from happening? Which is exactly what he did. So they wrote him perfectly, I think, in this film. Like he was like... He was human. He was human and he was determined to make things right because how was he supposed to know he was going to cause the the apocalypse, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah I love his character. It's perfect. And I love the, uh, the Terminator himself, as you said earlier, is learning to value life and become more human. Now, the interesting thing about that is it imitates us. The Terminator and robots are imitating us. We train it how it should behave. Machines are a reflection of humanity because input equals output. Wow. Yeah. You know, and so you very simply have that echoed in the first and second movie by who sends it back and why. And it's fulfilling its purpose. And along the way, of course, as you said, John Connor is teaching them how to be how to be human. And I also love that uh, we experience losing the Terminator twice. 
right? The first time he's killed by the T-1000 and we think he's done and his light goes out and we're like, oh, now we're in for it. Um, that's a heartbreaking moment. And I love that. And this is interesting. We'll get into this in a minute, but he has an alternate power source in there. Um, and that revives him. And it's like John Connor of the future kind of saw this coming maybe. Um, and he gave him an out, but then he sacrifices himself for the good of humanity, um, which is a really interesting, uh, evolution of his concept of protecting John Connor. Yeah. And so he does evolve to some extent, Mm -hmm. um, even though he's following orders, except whenever he has to break them in order to do the right thing. As far as writing goes, I really love the the callback to the first movie. It's very simple, but uh, which one? I mean, they that's have a, a good lot. point. I think my favorite is "Come with me if you want to live." Yep, it's a perfect message that John Connor sends to to Sarah Connor, his mother, by using Kyle Reese's line as a sign of trust. Yeah, like this is how you know you can trust him because he's saying the exact same thing Kyle Reese said to you. Mm-hmm. God, that's that's so really good. good. So good. <laughs> that's really good writing. I love the uh, the teamwork aspect. Whenever they're escaping the psych ward, when John is in the back seat reloading while they're fighting and driving, like that's such beautiful chemistry between all those characters fulfilling yeah. their purpose uh, in almost a robotic way. Like they all serve a function to this machine of survival, and they're all fulfilling it. And just so many times, the the Terminator, um, like like goes above and beyond to save them. My favorite part is at the where of favorite example of that is when they're driving the truck and, uh, the little truck and the, and it's towards the end when the, the T-1000 is driving the nitrogen mm. uh, truck and Schwarzenegger jumps into the bed and then onto the 18 wheeler, sm- like blows him away with like a hundred, <laughs> machine gun bullets then jumps into the side grabs the steering wheel and pulls it left to like to basically flip the Mm -hmm. the truck on purpose like he has no it's it's such a it's such good writing and we just have to go back to the writing so because it's not like i'm just going to stay in the truck and try to like you know blow out his tires and stuff no i'm physically going to try to destroy this thing no matter what no matter what it costs me and it it's just such a perfect example of that. And that happens like multiple times in the movie, but that time in particular, it makes me love Schwarzenegger's character. It makes me love the Terminator so much that he will go so far physically to, uh, to save John, which is a crazy pivot from the first film. Yeah. He was nothing but terror, which is brilliant by the way. Brilliant. (laughs) And so my last note on story is, the thing that I might love the most is probably not, but I'm going to say it for now. Uh, the thing that I might love the most is it was a very simple finale. There wasn't a massive explosion, yeah, but it was an intelligent destruction. So like in the first one, machinery killed the machinery of the first Terminator. And in this one, liquid kills the liquid metal of the Terminator. And it's 
just this pantomiming of using like to destroy like fighting fire with fire. And they didn't say, oh, we need to destroy it in a much bigger explosion. That's kind of what movies traditionally, not just present day, but most movies along the way since the 80s have all just said our big finale is going to be a bigger explosion. <laughs> it's like, no, what about something a little bit more intelligent that makes you not just think, but understand and, and empathize with what's happening. You can't see someone's face in a big explosion, but you can watch them as they die. <laughs> yeah. And we got to see him morph through all the characters fighting for survival until there was nothing left. And that was just freaking simple and yeah. beautiful. Yeah. I mean, how how brilliant is that to see that? Like, that's how he dies. That's how T-1000 dies. Is He goes through every... It's like his memory is being erased. Yeah. Right? Character by character by character. And then... And how it bubbles up, that CG is so good. How it like bubbles up and there's like this hole in the middle and then all of a sudden you see that final face and it just floats away. Like, man, that that's that was planned and that yeah. was it's like very evident that that was very important how Freaking he was gonna smart. melt. Yeah, so God. smart. So last and I think we'll try to get through this fast. I I feel like we're pushing the, the okay. fates here. Yeah. Um Sci-fi. Now, this was the whole reason why we were requested to do this show. Uh, these episodes, the T1 and T2, was, Stephen was curious what we thought about the, the science fiction and if it holds up. Yeah. I don't think it does in terms of this is the one part. But to their credit, they don't try to make it work, I don't think. For one, they do establish the rules really well. Uh, in terms of the sci-fi and the world rules that we're operating in. For instance, uh, the T-1000, right, can't form complex machinery, but it can do simple objects that it touches uh, and emulate life. It can make you look like a thing and sound like a thing, but it can't emulate a gun. Too many complex mechanisms. So they set that up pretty well, but they largely escape the time travel questions by just generally not diving into it. I don't know what it's like to really create something, to create a life, feel it growing inside you. All you know how to create is death Mom. and destruction. Mom! We need to be a little more constructive here, okay? We still have to stop this from happening, don't we? But I thought, aren't we changing things? I mean, right now, changing the way it goes. That's right. There's no way I'm going to finish the new processor. Not now. Forget it. I'm out of it. I'll quit Cyberdyne tomorrow. That's not good enough. No one must follow your work. Right. All right, then uh, we have to destroy all the stuff at the lab, the files, the disk drives, everything. Everything here. Everything. So they really don't. They just kind of say, yeah, we can change history. And that's about the extent of them diving into time travel mechanics. Like, we have to insert our own ideas at this point because they don't even attempt to dive into what it actually means. <laughs> and in our, which I think is smart because time travel is the mother of all, you know, asshole mechanics of science fiction. <laughs> you just yep. don't want to do it. Yep. Um, and if you do, you better have a very interesting take on it. And in their case, they just said, yeah, we can change it. We're changing it right now. And so we're going to. And that's the end of it. The Of course extracting and kind of backing up from macro level we have to look at and ask the question if we want to we can i don't think we have to because they don't force the issue and so in that way i give them a pass uh, because they did the smart thing of just 
avoiding it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but in terms of if you actually want to take it to its conclusions they have a definite bootstrap paradox that started in the first episode or the the first terminator where he sent the terminator back and he knew the terminator was going to go back because he knew his he was fathered by someone from the future which is inherently impossible right <laughs> and so this yeah. whole series is impossible like every yeah yeah unless it's like we talked about uh, a different time a different type of, of tra- time travel where it shoots off into an alternate universe yeah, and stuff, right? Absolutely. Um, Which goes down a rabbit hole. Yeah, it's a crazy, incompletable rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in that way, no, it doesn't hold up as from science fiction rules on that standpoint, but it holds up from a storytelling aspect because they don't try to justify it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's the smart decision. I think if anyone is smart enough to so, recognize that James Cameron is because he's an engineer by heart, I think. So you're saying this isn't science fiction. Oh, it's definitely science fiction. Um, I'm just saying that it's not beholden to any sci-fi rules in that regard and time travel. Oh, regard. I see. I see. Yeah. It, there can be a paradox and you just have to, you live, live, with, live it. with it. Yeah. yeah. Because they don't ag- really acknowledge it. Right. They never once attempt to, you know, make you believe, yeah, of course, John Connor uh, was born from a man who wasn't yet born. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Because that loop can never possibly start. Yeah. That's an, that's an impossible subject. Right. Um, if we are on the, all on the same time timeline yeah. and there are no other uh, timeline offshoots, mm. then yeah, it is. Because to make that work we would have to be like, I don't know, three or four timelines down from a time when John Connor never existed. Robots rebelled. They sent Kyle Reese back. Kyle Reese met Sarah Connor for whatever reason, had a baby. And then John Connor became the leader of this new timeline. <laughs> it just gets into this but, wacky universe. But that couldn't even happen because John sent Kyle the back. The whole reason that he went back. Right. Yeah, exactly. So you have to write a whole new story about why Kyle Reese and Sarah Connor ever met in the first place um, yeah. to create a John Connor. And so it just becomes this weird. Yeah, but that never would be impossible because they lived at different times. Right, but he would have had another mission. Yeah, but his mission was from John. So you're, oh, you're saying this was another... A whole other timeline where other ter- some ruler. other ruler was like, so hey, like, Kyle, you need to go back and save uh, my my sister's cousin yeah. because whatever. I um, mean, there have been arguments that we are all constantly on a loop and everything that could possibly happen has or will happen. But that couldn't possibly happen. <laughs> that couldn't possibly happen, though. There's no... For, because it's impossible. Like... Well, it's not impossible if one tiny thing changes every single time, right? I'm, I'm saying uh, maybe we're we're, uh, yeah, we're getting talking off topic. about two. No, no. Well, maybe we're just talking <laughs> about different things because I'm saying it's impossible for a person from the future to ever father someone from the past. <laughs> that is, there's no amount of small changes that could ever make that come to pass because they're they're at. Loggerhead, so that's that's a there's a causality issue there. Like, I could never go back in time and kill myself. There's no version of time where that's ever possible, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Without creating alternate timelines, right? Um, but if with alternate timelines, yeah, I guess anything's possible, yeah, if we allow for that for sure, yeah. So for a writing standpoint, they get a pass. I want to keep talking about this, so we're not going to, (laughs) okay? (laughs) Anyway, what do you give this? Oh, didn't you want to talk about wardrobe? 
Oh, we did. We already covered it. Wait, what are you talking about? With the masks, the SWAT teams, and oh, the, okay. and I thought the you were, cops okay. versus bikers. And yeah, okay. I sleekly worked yeah, you in. Like snuck that in. I, I snuck in wardrobe and visual effects um, conversationally. Jeez. I'm getting better at this. Yeah, sometimes. it's like streamlined. <laughs> no, yeah. man, I, I, 10. Same. Straight up 10, man. It, I, it can't give any less than that. I really can't either. And I thought I was close to saying, well, a nine because of the... Uh, the breaking of the bootstrap paradox. And I'm like, no, they don't try to justify it. I'm fine with it. It all works. Sell me. I'm 10. That's a 10. It's easy. And and I'm sorry, but I can't tell you that that's not how time works (laughs) (laughs) and be sure of it. Cause I don't know. I guess we sit here and we sit here and we say, no, that couldn't happen. But we don't fucking know. Like, come on until somebody actually travels through time in one direction or the other. It's impossible to know that. That's a good point. Maybe one day there's an explosion and I step into a wormhole and I go back a hundred years. Yeah, maybe we don't know. And then what's going to happen to now? Yeah. Who knows? I don't. I mean, it's it's a fun (laughs) me either. That's why this gets a 10 and not a nine. (laughs) I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Same. So what are you going to recommend this week? Uh, oh yes. I'm going to recommend there's a new season. It will, I believe it'll probably be out by the time this episode airs. There's a new season of black mirror coming out June 5th. Uh, and I'm going to recommend that, uh, every single time that that show comes out on Netflix, I'm, I'm all over it. It is one of my favorite shows like ever. I just, I love the, the way that it calls out, uh, technology and its its role in yeah. uh, in society, um, whether that's good or bad. A lot of times it's bad, um, but but sometimes it's good. And I I just love how it calls that out and brings that to the forefront in some crazy crazy ways that are just way off the rails. But it's so entertaining. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna recommend. And I started watching it tonight. I don't know if it's actually still good, but I'm gonna recommend Stargate. Oh, yeah. Not necessarily because I think that in and of itself is a fantastic movie. But what I love about Stargate is it spawned a TV show that the TV show in and of itself, again, isn't amazing in terms of its production value um, or even acting or whatever. But it's amazing in terms of its world building. It did what I thought Terminator couldn't do. There was a very finite amount of run that you could give Terminator. I think they explored everything they were going to explore with the first two movies. Everything beyond that is just kind of garbage and it's a cash cow and that's fine. I appreciate that. Some people like it. They love, you know, the robots and the technology and the thoughts. I just don't think they're doing anything interesting with it. Um, whereas Stargate took, uh, is less pretty, but far more interesting and thought provoking. They've really, uh, took a simple idea of there's a gate to another universe or not to universe, but wherever it goes Mm -hmm. and said, where else can that take us? Let's think about this. And the TV show goes in all these incredible directions and it does what I think science fiction is supposed to do what these, uh, T one and T two, uh, offer, which is let's explore how we as a human and as a society and culture interact with technology and with, uh, science fiction. How can we explore people through the use of science fiction and it does it wonderfully. Like so you recommend in the film or the show? I don't know the universe, yes. I guess. Yeah. Yes. I'm going to say the movie because okay. it's much prettier. Yeah, <laughs> the movie was really good. I didn't yeah. watch the show. So, yeah. And it's, a, it took me half a season to start getting into the show. Like it's a, 
that's a tough sell, but especially after you've seen the movie. Yeah. Yeah. It's really it's so beautiful, but they have some really interesting ideas and thoughts. Uh, and in that case, I probably could have recommended the Orville because it's, well, it's still not beautiful or funny, but it explores ideas really well, but I'm sticking with Stargate. Cool. I like I'm it. Stubborn. I like it. And so stay tuned next week. We're going to do John wick three, the third installment of the John wick series. Yes. And we're also going to have a guest star. Well, I don't know if he's starring necessarily. We'll have a, we'll a have guest caller. The, yeah. Yeah. From <laughs> the, the left coast. Uh, yeah. I yeah. can't not wait. It's our buddy, Aaron Alexander. We've talked about him ad nauseum on the show. Yeah. Um, and he's a fight choreographer and incredible actor. And so we're going to get some of his thoughts on John wick and, uh, choreography and stunt men and blah 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 yeah it's gonna be freaking cool yeah don't forget to subscribe and if you haven't dropped us a review please do so i know our buddy steven has already done that so big shout out to steven for for that and also big shout out to our guy izzy man he stays on the boards man he's awesome awesome you got to get on the board sometime todd yeah. and, and mix it up man <laughs> okay he's he's on it bro he's okay. good he's always got a really good thought and i love hearing sometimes he'll go and make his family watch uh, a movie and really? they'll, they'll have a wildly different reaction <laughs> did, it's, did he do that for hereditary yeah, I knew you were uh, no because he then he's a horrible human being <laughs> Is he? I'm sorry, brother, but <laughs> no, he didn't. Okay, he, good. He's, he's better than that. He's better than us. Um, okay, but good. it's really funny sometimes just to watch how different people respond to, to films. Oh, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, appreciate you, Izzy. Keep it up, bro. Yeah. Thanks, man. And if anybody wants to comment on this specific episode, you can do that at the pestlepodcast.com slash Terminator two judgment day. And we'll leave you with a quote of the day from James Cameron. I tend to like strong female characters. It just interests me dramatically. A strong male character isn't interesting because it has been done and it's so cliched. A weak male character is interesting. Somebody else hasn't done it a hundred times. A strong female character is still interesting to me because it hasn't been done all that much. Finding the balance of femininity and strength. Yeah, I mean, well, he nailed it (laughs) for, for this. We've seen a ton of really strong guys tackle the world. And I love that he said that a weak male character is pretty interesting. We haven't really seen that that much. Uh, And that just makes me want to explore that concept. Just even thinking about it. That's pretty fun. I mean, there's there's a short in there somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I think that's why he's chosen. He he's such a smart writer and director, um, even if sometimes I'm not sold 100 percent on his projects. But he sees the angle and the angle of uh, what's missing. Sometimes as writers and creators, we look at what's out there and we want to say, oh, I want to add to that. And sometimes it's much better to look and say, what's missing from this picture? What's the opposite of that? Yeah. Yeah. And that's what he said. He's like, no, I want to make an Ellen Ripley. I want to make a a Sarah Connor. By the way, I mean, this is such a great quote because he, his strong women are actual strong women. They're not strong women because of men or they're not strong women in place of men or they're not, it has, men have nothing to do with they're strong women. I mean, yes, yes, Schwarzenegger helped Sarah Connor, but she, she was a complete badass with or without him. Absolutely. You know? And I love, it's it's a challenging thing to give a character their moment while also acknowledging that they interact with the world in a realistic way. Mm-hmm. To make Sarah Connor into a badass wasn't to take away the strength of the Terminator. 
they're both strong and they're both contributing to this fight and it's okay and it's okay to have a really strong female character take on you know other strong characters and also to op coordinate and work with them like it all works together it doesn't have to be either or yeah but what makes this work really well t2 versus t1 was t1 she was a weak character she was a waitress what was she supposed to be doing um but he allowed her to evolve and learn from that experience and become a strong character and so that's just such a fun arc to think about and to to go with to watch back to back i just i keep going back to that man Same. watch these movies back to back it's like it's fun it is, yeah it's like watching a six-year-old's version of a movie <laughs> and then watching a 50 year old's version of the movie it's it's so much more mature it's badass anyway great quote thanks yeah. man awesome so again join us next week john wick three we'll, we'll have a special guest we're very excited about that um until next time i'm todd i'm wes go watch some movies